This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed, 60 minutes of old-time radio crime brought to you every Wednesday by RelicRadio.com. If you'd like to help support this and all of the Relic Radio podcasts, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support makes all of this happen and has for 15 years. Thanks again to those who have. Thanks for joining me this week. We're going to begin this time with crime classics and the checkered life and sudden death of Colonel James Fisk. Their episode from June 29, 1953. After that, it's the new adventures of Nero Wolf and the Telltale Ribbon. That episode aired March 30, 1951. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The man who just fell down the stairs is Colonel James Fisk, Jr. Although the colonel is a man given to the consumption of dozens of Blue Point oysters and bottles of heady wine at a sitting, his friends were given to pointing him out as a man inordinately steady on his feet. So why did he tumble down the stairs, and in New York's Grand Central Hotel, no less, where stair tumbling was frowned upon? The colonel didn't slip. He wasn't pushed. He was shot. The sudden presence of two bullets in him had upset his equilibrium. The man who's running away is the man who just shot the colonel. His name, Edward S. Stokes. Until recently, the colonel's very dear friend. There he goes. And tonight, my report to you on the checkered life and sudden death of Colonel James Fisk, Jr. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. And now once again, Thomas Highland. (laughs) Colonel Fisk lay at the bottom of the stairs... A few minutes before four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, January the 6th, 1872. He was dying. His life was coming to an end. And he would be sorely missed by his family, Mrs. Fisk and the children, and whom were Jay Gould, Boss Tweed, and the heavier stockholders of the day. A man dying, and I know the precise instant when his dying began. It started some months ago in a rather ornate house in Washington Square. Two women were talking, and the younger one said, Annie, how can I meet Colonel Fisk? That was the instant, and the older one said, (laughs) But the younger one was not young enough to take Deary for an answer. I mean it, Annie. I want to meet him. He's so wealthy, isn't he? And all I have is a black and white silk dress and an empty purse. So very empty, dear Annie. Oh, orphans in the rain and empty purses sadden me so, dear Josie. And I've heard he's coming here tonight to visit with you. The dear colonel says I set such a good table. Uh, Dear Josie. Yes? Walk over there to that cabinet, dear Josie. In the very bottom drawer you will find two candlesticks given to me by the minister from Egypt. Get them. Yes, now put them on the table. Mm -hmm. And light them. Good. Now blow them out, gently. Well, Annie? Dear Josie, will you join the dear Colonel and me for dinner tonight? So nice of you to ask. I'd be delighted, dear Annie. it was that Colonel Fisk and Josie Mansfield met. I kiss your hand, Josie. 
You're a very sweet man. Oh, isn't she a dear? So lovely. And so poor. So sad. The colonel was a man easily touched. And this was the era for young widows, beautiful and penniless. It was the era for weeping at the mere thought of such a situation. It was a decade of compassion and champagne. And this night, the meeting night, was one of the most poignant of the decade. Tomorrow, Josie, a jewel to lie against the throat. Oh, Colonel. My carriage will call for you at noon and bring you to me. The necklace counter? Of course, my dear. More wine. Look at it, dear. Do you like it? It's very nice. And it's all yours. Oh, thank you. I've always wanted a home of my own. And servants of my own. Six. Kiss me, Colonel. Good evening, Colonel. Evening, Quimby. This is Mr. Stokes. May I take your cane, sir? Thank you, Quimby. This is in the drawing room. She's waiting for you. This way, Stokes. Hello, Colonel. And you must be the Colonel's best friend, Mr. Stokes. I hope this is no imposition, ma'am. Preparing dinner? Certainly not. I just sat here all day, listening to the new present the Colonel sent me while the servants made ready. Do you like the new music box, my dear? It reminds me of you when you're away from me. <laughs> Such a pretty speech. How fortunate you are, Colonel. Oh, wait till you taste her pheasant a la Esther. I can hardly wait. Uh, Excuse me for a moment. Where are you going, Colonel? I left a small package for you out in the carriage, my dear. And oh, of I... course. We'll excuse you. So, you're Mr. Stokes. I must say he was right. You are elegant. He was right. You are very lovely. And you... You're... What? You are. Will you help me light the candles? Josie. Will you help me with the fireplace? Josie. The music box is run down. Will you... Josie. You won't help me with anything. You're wicked. You're very wicked. Mr. Edward Stokes was five feet nine inches high. His head was covered with glossy curls, his complexion clear, his features regular, and his eyes dark blue. He was dressed in the height of fashion, and his diamond studs gleamed brilliantly. And after the colonel returned with a forgotten package... Oh, a ruby pendant. Thank you, colonel. You're very welcome. And after the wine was drunk and venison devoured, and the fingers dipped in the lemon water, after that evening of old friends and new, after that, there was a new day. And there was this. Good morning, Mr. Stokes. Good morning, Quimby. Is, um... The mistress is in the sitting room. She's waiting for you. Thank you, my man. Josie. Edward. Oh, wait, Edward. I was out this morning early shopping. Here, I bought something for you. Open it. Josie. Little stick pin. There was no need for you to... Oh, yes, there was. Now be quiet. Wild, storm-tossed lovers you might care to eavesdrop upon, since they'll give you a better understanding of the currents sweeping these two upon violent shores. 
like this one. The best champagne in New York. Now take off your little shoe. <laughs> Here, use my mallet, dear. <laughs> this croquet has brought the pink to your cheeks. Make your shot. <laughs> As is always the case in skullduggery of this sort, there is an in the meanwhile. In the Park Avenue home of Colonel James Fisk, Jr., the colonel and his lady. The children have been tucked away for the night, the servants snug in their quarters, as were the animals. A quiet hour, an hour for a man for family discussion. You fool! You cheat! Blackguard! Uh, dear, the children, you'll awaken them. A woman like that? Have you no compassion in your heart? She's a widow. Ha! Alone in the world. I, I am but her advisor. Ha, ha. Now that's all you are. What are you talking about? What all of New York is saying. And that is? Ha, ha. And that is? The most concerned is the last to know. Know what? Your precious widow and Edward Stokes. What? Ha, ha, Colonel. Now you know what I've been through. The aggravation, the shame... The heartache, the sorrow, the unrequited love. Where is uh, the uh, mistress? Is in her boudoir. Go awaken her. Who is her. it, Quimby? It's not Mr. Stokes, ma'am. What? Well, good evening, Colonel. What's this I hear about you and that... that scamp, Edward Stokes? Why, what have you heard? That you and he... Who told you that? My wife. The Colonel. Then it's true. I love him very much. Josie. Go back to your wife. I warn you. You? Warn me? You, Colonel? Listen to me. I'll ruin you. Please. Go home. You and Edward Stokes. Mark my word. I'll ruin the both of you. My promise to you, if it takes the rest of my life. The colonel left. The colonel was driven to his club where the colonel spent the night. And the next morning, early... The colonel began the final week of his life. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Highland. A dead man's coat is the key to a killing. Its disappearance starts Mr. and Mrs. North off on a merry, mysterious manhunt tomorrow night. Don't miss Coat of Arms, a matter of murder confronting Pam and Jerry North. Tomorrow, listen to For John Lund is yours truly, Johnny Dollar, the insurance sleuth with the action-packed expense account. And now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the checkered life and sudden death of Colonel James Fisk, Jr., I'd like to set the coordinates for you again. Take a reading of exactly where we are in time. The year is 1872. The place is New York City. Now, 1872 was a vintage year for pearls in the bottom of champagne glasses, of fatted railroad stocks, and the diamond harvest was spectacular. 
The term rags to riches was coined on a day in this year when a raggedy sewing machine girl was summoned from her chores, taken by the hand, dressed in silk, then released into a gilded cage. New York City at this time was a center for many similar dramas, one of which we're concerning ourselves with. Colonel James Fisk, Jr. had compassion for a widow named Josie Mansfield. Josie Mansfield had compassion for the colonel's friend, Edward Stokes. The colonel, upon hearing of this arrangement, immediately went into action in a colonel-like manner. Your Honor, I want to swear out a warrant for the arrest of Edward S. Stokes for embezzlement. Why, certainly, colonel. We'll have the culprit in jail in no time at all. Inside, will you, Mr. Stokes? Jailer. Yes, sir, Mr. Stokes? Do you have the list? Yes, sir. Your living room furniture, the portraits, and the bed. I'll have them here in no time at all. Edward Stokes was a model prisoner for two days. He was then released when the charge against him was dropped. Not to be outdone, he went into action in a manner which gained the plaudits of his cronies. Your Honor, I want to swear out a warrant for the arrest of Colonel James Fisk, Jr. for false imprisonment. Why, certainly, Mr. Stokes. We'll have the culprit in jail in no time at all. Jailer. Yes, sir, Colonel. The living room furniture, your easy chair in the library, and the bed. I'll have them here in no time at all. War of nerves, tactics, and strategies, and reprisals. And the real victors, the gatherers of the loot, the lawyers. So the colonel and Mr. Stokes called a truce, waved white napkins at each other across a gleaming table at Delmonico's. Stokes, I think we both acted like children. I agree with you, Colonel. Let me fill your glass. Yeah. A toast. To a friendship. Our friendship, Colonel. Enough of jails and lawyers and arguments. Life is too short. I'll drink to that, too. Colonel? And we can settle our affairs like men. I'll drink to that, too. Uh, no, wait. Let's settle our affairs first. Delighted. There is only one thing which stands in our way. Obviously. Josie Mansfield. You're right. Stokes, you're not ever to see her again. Colonel. You agree? Colonel, you're a fat, stupid fool. I accept that. But you're never to see Josie Mansfield again. Josie told me that if I saw you, I was to tell you you are a fat, stupid fool. And you are. I warned you once, Stokes. I'm not going to warn you again. Then I'll warn you. If you make any trouble, Colonel, you won't live to enjoy it. My promise to you. Good evening, Mr. Stokes. The mistress is in the park. Josie. Josie. Josie, wake up. Oh, Edward. How nice, Edward. Dearest, listen. It's important. Are you awake? Well, of course. I just drowsed off. I was reading and waiting for you, and now you're here. Josie, listen. It's about Colonel Fisk. Oh, please don't talk about him. Not now. He's ruined me. What are you talking about? I'm a pauper. <laughs> you? Well, you're one of the wealthiest young no, men in No, no, not now. I don't have a penny. What happened? The stocks I had, all my assets. Well? The colonel forced down the value of the Erie Railroad stocks, wiped me out. Oh, Edward, I'm so sorry. Josie. Yes? I'm poor now. Do you want me to leave? Never come back? Darling Edward. Darling dearest Edward. Josie. We'll beat him. We'll destroy the colonel, you and I, together. That's impossible. He's too powerful. He's a weakling. What? I can prove he's a weakling. He writes letters. Letters? I saved them. And that's not all. 
What do you mean? Dealings he's had. Dishonest business dealings. Would you like to look at them? Dearest Josie, I love you so much. So that's why I thought it more discreet to hire a cab, Colonel. Surely you understand. I must tell you, Stokes, when I agreed to meet you, to ride with you in a hired hack at night... I explained the necessity of secrecy, Colonel. As indeed you did not. You merely said secrecy. That is why I must tell you I am confused. Have you made another decision about Joseph? A tentative decision, Colonel. Tentative? Yes, it depends on you. Oh? I need money. I know. Badly. I know. Colonel? Yes? You love Josie very much, don't you? I understand you now, Stokes. I thought you would. Do you want me to reimburse you for the money you've lost? A quarter of a million dollars. I know. In return for which, you'll give up Josie. That's right. I'm sure there must be a name for you, Mr. Stokes. I'm sure of it. I had an experience last night... I had dinner at home with my wife. The children were with us. After dinner, I played on the floor with my children. I heard them laugh. I heard my wife laugh, too. And I laughed, too. And there was no other meaning behind my laughter except enjoyment of my family. Very touching. And rewarding. Then you are not interested in my proposal. I'll get off at the next corner, Mr. Stokes. Tell the driver. Of course. Next corner, cabby. Well, Mr. Stokes, give my regards to Josie. Tell her I'm truly sorry for what's going to become of her. Goodbye, Mr. Stokes. Uh, Colonel, wait. I'm sorry we have nothing else to talk about. Except the letters. What letters? You have a rich way with words, Colonel. I congratulate you. I don't understand. Oh, of course you do. The letters you wrote to Josie. I see all of them. I see. They could ruin you. Perhaps. I remember one of the letters opened with, Dearest Josie, my poor little widow, your sad tears still on my Ten thousand dollars. And another, Dear Josie, this morning I was at Tammany Hall and with Boss Tweed arrangements were made to relieve the city. Ten thousand dollars. A quarter of a million for the letters, Colonel. Ten thousand, or you may publish them or do what you want with them. Surely you're not serious. Good night, Mr. Stokes. Ten thousand. Bring your letters to me tomorrow, and you shall get your money. Good night. Almanac I have occasion to call on now and then, says that Saturday, the 6th of January, in the year 1872, is the 66th anniversary of the Volunteer Fire Department of Roanoke, Virginia. Also, it predicts the day will be cold and clear with high westerly winds. So, we'll make an assumption. On a cold, clear Saturday morning, buffeted by the high westerly winds, Mr. Edward Stokes made his way to the Wall Street office of Colonel Fisk. Here he received more coldness and $10,000. Here he deposited with the Colonel a stack of letters, wrapped in blue ribbon and sachet. Then Edward Stokes called on Josie Mansfield. He told her of the transaction. We must imagine that Josie's reaction went something like this. You idiot! You Bumbling, spineless idiot! But, Josie... I should have known better than to trust you with those letters. But $10,000 is better than nothing. If you'd had the courage... He told me 10000 or nothing. If you'd had the courage, he would have given you everything he owns. Why, the mere possession of the letter dated June 16, 1871, would have been a fortune ten times the amount you got. But... But what? You have your jewels, this house. Surely you must be worth nearly a million yourself. I love you, dear Edward, but that's my money. You'll just have... What is it, Quimby? 
Miss Annie Wood wishes to speak with you. Tell her I'm busy. She said it's extremely urgent. Extremely urgent. Hello, Annie. Yeah. Josie, dear Josie, and dear Mr. Stokes. Hello. The judge came to see me for lunch a little while ago. Judge? What are you talking about? Uh, judge Trickler. Well, I don't see... He just come from court. He just signed a warrant. Yes? For the arrest of dear Mr. Stokes on the charge of blackmail. Colonel Fisk? Yes. The dear judge told me that the colonel asked him to sign such a warrant. Uh, Josie? Yes? We'll be seeing each other more often. Won't we, dear Josie? Publication of the time. I quote, The next that was seen of Edward Stokes, as far as is known, was at a few minutes before four o'clock, when he was walking carelessly up and down the main corridor of the Grand Central Hotel on the parlor floor. This corridor is one story above the street, is parallel with Broadway, and at its northern end is reached by a staircase from the street. Passing and repassing the head of the staircase... Stokes glanced furtively down the stairs. It was nearly four o'clock when Colonel James Fisk, Jr., drove up in a carriage to the door. Stepping out of his carriage and walking briskly across the pavement, he passed through the outer door of the hotel. When he had done so, he was heard to inquire for a certain Annette Latour. He was told she was in and started up the stairs. Good afternoon, Colonel. Stokes, don't! You'll ruin me. For the love of heaven, someone help me! Edward Stokes was restrained a block away. The colonel didn't die immediately. He was lifted by three bellhops and taken to chambers supplied by the management. Doctors were called, and the colonel joked with them, as he joked with his many friends who came to visit him. He joked with everybody. The next day, in the middle of a joke, he died. Thomas Stokes pleaded self-defense. He was convicted of manslaughter in the third degree. Josie Mansfield spent her remaining days with her aunt, Miss Annie Wood. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classics. This Wednesday night, screen hero Jeff Chandler plays a young man hired for an important job, a job of guarding the very much alive body of a notorious gangster. Hear the exciting details in the story entitled The Web on your Playhouse on Broadway. It's presented by CBS Radio this Wednesday night on most of these same stations. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Long Melford in the county of Suffolk in England. The year, 1739. My report to you will be on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr. Thank you. Good night. James Fisk Jr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. James Fisk Jr. was played by William Johnstone. Featured in the cast were Mary Jane Croft, Martha Wentworth, Steve Roberts, Harry Bartell, 
Paula Winslow and Charles Calvert. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Gary Moore with Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. And remember, your news is always accurately reported when it comes from the CBS Radio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, the ringing of that phone bell brings you mystery, adventure. Nero Wolf's office, Archie Goodwin speaking. What? Who? Who is this? Who wants to speak to Mr. Wolf? Nobody. Nobody? I said they'd hang up. It's late and it's too cold. And even if it weren't, I would not consider for one moment moving from this room. Please, Mr. Wolf, I can't hear a thing this old gentleman's saying. Does it matter? You heard what I said? No. Now, what did you say? You were late because she was killed. Who was killed? I can't hear you. What is it about, Archie? He says he was due here an hour ago, but she was killed. Who was killed? What does he want? Uh, Do you want us to solve the crime? I say, do you want us to find out who killed her? Oh. He says he knows who did it, but he has an important message for you. Well, then come right over. We'll be waiting, Mr. Jenkins. Archie, why do you insist on taking every silly little case? Because, boss, we need to recover from March 15th. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that renowned genius who is the bulkiest, balkiest, most ponderous, and most brilliant detective in the world. Yes, none other than that chairborne mass of unpredictable intellect, Nero Wolf, created by Rex Stout, and brought to you in a new series of adventures of this NBC network in the person of Mr. Sidney Greenstreet. <laughs> This case I like to refer to as the case of the Telltale Ribbon. Perhaps a better title would be Wolf Goes A-Hunting. For in a way, this was one of those unusual instances in which my boss, of his own free will and without any coercion, actually decided to leave the house and go to the scene of the crime. It started when the strange old gentleman who phoned us finally arrived. Well, there's our client, Mr. Wolf. Evening. It's me. Who's me? Oh, I, I just phoned you. I, I'm Jenkins. I got a dispatch for Nero Wolf. Oh, you're Jenkins. Well, come in, come in. Uh, Mr. Wolf, this is Mr. Jenkins. Says he has a dispatch for you. Yep. Yeah. Are you Wolf? I am. Where is the dispatch from? Don't know. You, you don't know? How come? Oh, I know, but I'm supposed to say I don't. See? That's my job. What is? Just to say I don't know. What about the murder? Yeah, who was killed? Oh, my goodness. It was a terrible thing. We were just crossing the turnpike, and this fella come at us out of nowhere. The killer? Yeah. Must have been drunk, I guess. Well, how did it happen? Did he shoot her, stab her? Oh, no, no. He ran into her with his car. And she was only nine years old. Your granddaughter? No, no, it was Bessie. But the police got him. I, I have to appear, I guess. Probably get 90 days, he will. The Murder? Murder. Was somebody murdered? I must have missed something. Look, we're talking about Bessie, and what do you want us to do about it? Nothing. Bessie's my old horse. Oh, no. Uh, But say, who was it that was murdered? Nobody yet. Good night, Mr. Jenkins. I thought you said it was important. It might be. At least that's the way I was told. What might be? Uh, This here letter I was bringing to you. This is dispatch. Well, got to get along now. Uh, Goodbye. Well, get him. What a pixie. What is in the envelope? Mr. Wolf, look. Five $100 bills. And the note says, Mr. Wolf, your services are desperately needed. Come up this weekend as my guest. Signed, E. Malott. Edwin Malott, the wealthy manufacturer. Hmm. Well, looks as though you're going out this weekend. Well, Archie, pay my respects to Mr. Malott, and I hope you enjoy the weekend. Good night. Something's certainly phony about this. There's no party going on here tonight. Yes? What is it? Is this the Malotte place? It is. What do you want? My name's Goodwin. I'm a guest of Mr. Malotte's. A guest? Yes, he invited me down for the weekend. Weekend? 
Oh. Well, you better step in, please, Mr. Goodwin. Quite a bolt you've got on that door. Yes, isn't it? Just sit down there, please. I'll get Mr. Malott. He's in the library. Oh, here he is. This is Mr. Goodwin, sir. Says he's come down for the weekend. Mr. Goodwin? Good evening. You've come for the weekend, you say? Yes, wasn't that the idea, Mr. Malott? Well, I, uh, I don't understand, Mr. Goodwin. Didn't you send me this note asking me to come here? Note? I did not. Oh, well, well, this is my personal note stationery, but I don't recall sending this. I didn't even type it. And I'm in the habit of signing my name with a pen, not with a typewriter. E. Malott. You're certainly Edward Malott. Yes. Services are desperately needed. What does this mean? What services? Who are you, Mr. Goodwin? Are you serious? I'm a private investigator. I'm Nero Wolfe's assistant. Oh, indeed. Nero Wolfe, eh? I know of him, yes, indeed. And you really don't know anything about this note? I do not. Are you having a weekend party here? <laughs> I most certainly am not. Then who sent this? And there were five $100 bills as a retainer. I haven't the slightest idea. Oh, uh, Dorothy. Yes? Will you step in here, please? Uh, Miss Davis is my private secretary. Uh, she may know something about this. Yes, Mr. Malott. What is it? I... Uh, Dorothy. Oh. Dorothy, this is Mr. Goodwin. How do you do, Mr. Goodwin? Well, I... How do you do, Miss Davis? Uh, yes, yes, well. Uh, Mr. Goodwin is assistant to Nero Wolfe. You don't say. Nero Wolfe, the detective? Well, I've heard a great deal about him. And about you, too, Mr. Goodwin. Well, now I'm mighty glad to hear you say that, Miss Davis. Uh, Mr. Goodwin has Edward, a note here. Is anything wrong, Edward? I heard voices... Oh, do we have company? Nothing is wrong, Eva. I was calling Dorothy, that's all. Oh. oh, this is Mr. Goodwin, Eva. My wife, Mr. Goodwin. How do you do, Mrs. Malone? Mr. Goodwin, I... Oh, yes, how, how do you do? Uh, now, as I was about to say, Dorothy, Mr. Goodwin... What's going on? Mr. Goodwin, uh, this is my son, Larry. Good evening. What's wrong? Uh, Mr. Goodwin has been invited here for the weekend. He has an invitation supposedly written by me. At least uh, it's on my stationery. Look at this, Dorothy. Know anything about this note? No. No. I certainly didn't write it. But it's my personal note paper, and my signature is typewritten. I'd uh, never do that. Well, somebody sent it. Who's Jenkins? Jenkins? Never heard of him. A little dried-up old man. He delivered it to us. Yeah, maybe it didn't even come from this house. I'm positive that it didn't. Never heard of Jenkins. You have a typewriter here, of course. Yes. I'd like to see it. Uh, certainly, Mr. Goodwin, in the library. How far have you come, Mr. Goodwin? From New York, Manhattan. Oh, and it's such a dreadful night, too. Yes, yes, and it is rather late. Late? It's only 7.30. Why not stay here for the night? Plenty of room? Uh, yes, Mr. Goodwin, plenty of room. Well, I, I don't really think that's necessary. I, uh... On the other hand, it would be a tough drive back to the city in this storm. I'll accept your hospitality, Mr. Malott. Very good. Oh, uh, Jeffries... Show Mr. Goodwin to the uh, East Wing and uh, take care of his car. Yes, sir. Good night, Mr. Goodwin. You, you mean you're all going to retire now? I haven't even had my dinner. We retire very early here. But Jeffries will prepare anything you want. Good night. Oh, dear. Who moved that phone? Hello, Wolf speaking. Archie, boss. Well, I'm here at Malotte's place, but there ain't no party. What happened? Are you in the right house? I'm afraid I am. They've all gone to bed. Weird bunch. His wife, who looks very sickly and I think wants to say something to me alone, and Larry the son and Malotte's secretary, Dorothy Davis. She has me bothered a bit. How unusual. Especially if she's pretty. A beauty. But she seems to know all about me. Hmm. You better come home, Archie. I can see you're in no condition to handle this case properly. Give them the money back. Oh, I forgot to tell you. They don't want me here. Malat didn't send the note. No one here knows anything about it, so we can keep the dough. Interesting indeed. The circumstances would indicate that you should stay there and wait for it to happen. For what to happen? For whatever it is the fates have conspired to have happen there while your shiny little ego is in the midst of it. Who is it? It's Archie Goodwin, Mrs. Malott. Come in. Come in, please. I saw you give me the eye when I was about to leave. I've been waiting till I felt sure they were all asleep. 
Now, what's up? I wrote you that note. I sent for you. How do I know that? Old man Jenkins is a scissor and knife sharpener who happens along every month or so. They wouldn't know him. I put five $100 bills in the envelope. Okay, why? My life is in danger. I've been threatened. I received three notes through the mail. They were all postmarked in New York City. Could I see them? Here they are. All typewritten. Hmm. The first one reads, there is no love for you in Grey Gables. The second, why stay on in the face of death? And the third, the time is shorter than you think. Do you think this is a, well, an inside job, Mrs. Miller? Well, at first I didn't. But lately I've come to think it is. What caused you to think that? For some time I've been having severe spells. I thought it was indigestion. But then it occurred to me that I always broke out in cold perspiration. I was left horribly weakened, terribly thirsty. Thirsty? You fear you're being poisoned? Yes. And since the thought came to me, I've been living in fear. Fear of every bite of food or drink. I had so shattered my nerves that I have to take these yellow sleeping capsules to even close my eyes. Well, here's your husband and his secretary and your son, Larry. Larry is my stepson. Which one do you suspect? The secretary, Dorothy, or my husband, or both. What's the motive? Well, they're in love. She's been here over two years, and they've spent most of their time together. The idea never occurred to me till last week. And when I watched them, it... It was quite obvious. Anybody else know about these three notes? Oh, no. Then I'll keep them for a while. Good night, Mrs. Mallott. And don't worry. What are you doing, Mr. Goodwin, snooping around in Father's library? Well, Larry, I was just trying to find out if this Remington was the machine you used to type those notes. What? What notes? The notes you sent your stepmother. Why, I don't know anything about any notes. Then why were you so startled? I'm not startled. I just, well, uh, why would I threaten her? So you do know about them. I didn't mention the contents of the notes. I just happened to see them on the table in her sitting room. You don't care too much about your stepmother, do you? Oh, she's all right. You don't care too much about Dorothy either, do you? I certainly don't. Why not? Well, I don't like her tactics, making a fool out of my father. If anybody here sent those notes, she did. You think Dorothy would have a motive? I certainly do. Of course, you wouldn't have a motive, would you? No. Well, I'm inclined to think you would. Well, just what motive would I have? You don't seem to like any woman who's too close to your father. Maybe because you'd resent anyone sharing in the estate if your father died. If I were you, Mr. Goodwin, I'd leave. Tonight. And the sooner the better. Good night. Reggie. Arg... Oh, confounded boy. Yes, Archie? You have the wrong number. This is Sherlock Holmes speaking. Why don't you go to bed like the others? You don't have to push it. It'll happen. Eva Malotte thinks she's being slowly poisoned. Suspects her husband and his secretary. She could be right. What are the symptoms she suffers? Gastric disturbances, weakness, thirst. Indeed. What about the son? Have any ideas? He doesn't like his stepmother and is decidedly against his father's secretary, Dorothy. He knew all about the notes Mrs. Mallott had received. Saw them on her dressing table. He believes Dorothy's the culprit. Then I should say that Dorothy should be the next on your list. You can say that again. Be careful, Archie. Use your head this time. Incidentally, Larry advised me to leave the place tonight. Bit of a threat it was, too. What shall I do, Mr. Anthony? Do nothing. The trouble will come to you. Bye. Mr. Mallott, I thought you'd turned in for the night. It's quite obvious you thought so, Mr. Goodman. What are you doing in the library? Why, just looking for something to read. You'll find the books all around the walls, not on my desk. Well, I was looking for a particular kind of book. I'm very much interested in poisons. Poisons? Yeah, a hobby of mine. You happen to have any books on toxicology? I do not. And what's that book on the fourth shelf right beside you? Why, I, I uh... Oh, oh toxicology... Where did that come from? Never saw it before. Hmm. Uh, perhaps it was in that uh, assorted collection I bought a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't noticed it. Larry probably put them on the shelves. Mr. Mallott, how long have you known Dorothy, your secretary? Uh, a little over two years. Did it ever occur to you that she might be, well, infatuated, in love with you? What? Well, of all the... Now, see here. I don't know what you're up to, and I don't know how you got hold of my stationery to write that fake note. It isn't a but fake I... note, Mallott. I'm only trying to find out what's back of it. 
Mr. Goodwin, there is nothing going on here that requires the services of a detective, and Dorothy is not in love with me. I didn't say she was. I asked you if you thought she might be. Well, since this conversation seems to concern me, I suppose I am at liberty to come in. Oh, you're still up too, Miss Davis. Did you hear what this man said, Dorothy? Yes, I did, Mr. Millard. And I'd like to have a few words alone with Mr. Goodwin, if you don't mind. Mr. Goodwin, would you mind coming with me for a few minutes? No, not at all. And... Well, it's rather late, Mr. Malott. Don't you think you should retire? It's a heavy day tomorrow. Well, uh, uh, yes. Yes, I suppose I should. And please, don't let this upset you. Mr. Goodwin has been misinformed. I'll straighten him out. Come on, Mr. Goodwin. The bar is right across the hall. I'll fix you a nice, soothing drink. That'll be nice. Well, now, what would you like, Mr. Goodwin? In the way of drinks? Oh, well, some seven-up. Really? <laughs> Just sit down over there. Okay, what do you want to talk about? Well, where did you get the idea that I was in love with Mr. Millat? First, suppose you tell me if you are in love with him. Yes, I am. But until a few minutes ago, he wasn't even aware of it. I worship him and his work. I never wanted him to know because he's married. It would have caused trouble and I'd have had to leave here. Now he knows it's true. Well, now that he knows, what will happen? Well, I'm going to leave tonight. Now. I see. And since I don't own a car, Mr. Goodwin, I'm going to ask you to do me a very great favor. Will you run me into New York? I want to leave without a word. If I wait till morning, I'll have to explain to Mr. Millard and... Well, that would be most embarrassing, Archie. Oh, now it's Archie. You, you don't really mind, do you? No, no, I guess I don't. I should, maybe, but, uh... Don't you like your drink? What'd you put in this drink? What do you mean? What'd you dope it with? <laughs> Archie, why would I do that? Might be several reasons. There's nothing in that drink. No? Then suppose you drink it. Why? <laughs> Give it to me. I'll throw it out. If you want another drink, fix it yourself. I'll have my things ready in five minutes. Are you going to take me? Sure. Certainly I'm going to take you. But are you sure you have to go tonight? I must go tonight. Now. I wish I knew why. Mr. Wolf's always so right. What? Just talking to myself. Dorothy! Larry! Jeffries! Come upstairs! What's happened? Call Dr. Hauser. Something terrible has happened to Eva. Well, Dr. Hauser? Oh, poor Mrs. Millot. No, there's nothing to be done now. It's all over. Eva, Eva. You'd better lie down, Mr. Millot. I'll phone and take care of everything. I'll be here if you need me. I uh, have to make out the certificate. Yes, come along, Mr. Millot. Just a minute. You too, Larry. I don't want to make this any more unpleasant for you, but, Doctor, just what are you going to put on the certificate as the cause of death? Acute gastritis. Is that what you've been treating her for? Well, she's had several attacks lately. I'd warned her to be cautious of her diet. And that was wise advice, too. Did you know about these attacks, Mr. Mallott? Yes, I did. And you, Dorothy? Yes, I knew. And you knew also, Larry? Uh, no, I, I knew she hadn't been feeling well. How long had Mrs. Mallott been suffering from insomnia? Oh, a year at least. I prescribed Nemitol. In yellow capsules? Of course. I wrote a prescription every so often calling for 12 capsules. You all knew about that, of course. I thought so. And would this be the prescription, this little box of capsules here on... Well. What's the matter, Mr. Goodwin? That box was open on this nightstand when we stepped into this room. All right, let's have the box, Mr. Millard. Thank you. Why'd you pick it up? Because I... I didn't want the stigma of suicide on Eva's name, nor mine. Suicide? Yes. Eva had this prescription filled yesterday morning. The dose is one at bedtime. Twelve capsules. She took one last night. I glanced at the open box when I came into the room, and there were only eight capsules left. I... I knew instantly what had happened. She'd taken an overdose. Doctor, do you think three capsules would be sufficient to cause her death? I doubt it very much. So do I. Mrs. Mallott didn't die from an overdose of sleeping capsules. She was poisoned. Poisoned? Are you crazy? By whom? By you. Or Dorothy. Or Larry. No. I didn't do it. I didn't write those notes. What notes? Mrs. Mallott had received three notes threatening her life if she didn't leave this house. Each of you had a motive, so I'm sending this body to the coroner for an immediate autopsy. I won't permit it. The police will see to it. You have no choice. Uh, 
Yes, Archie. What now? Do you know who did it? How do you know anything's happened? Let us call it extrasensory perception. Well, Mrs. Malott was right. She's dead. Her doctor knew nothing about the spell she was having as being caused by anything but indigestion. How about an autopsy? It's all in the works. Looks like a metallic poison, all the symptoms. Oh? Did you search the house carefully for such a poison? I did. I'll check the drugstores in the morning. Somebody in that house will purchase some poison. Let me know when the autopsy report is in. Right. Let's see now. We have Mr. Malott, Dorothy Davis, and Larry the son. He's Mr. Malott's son, but not the child of Eva Malott, remember? Yes. Is it true that Dorothy is in love with Malott? Yeah. Dorothy admitted it to me, but claimed Malott wasn't aware of it until tonight. And earlier this evening, Dorothy tried her best to get me out of the house, insisted that I drive her into town. She tried to give me a drink, which I think might have contained knockout drops. You don't say. Archie, I should have Fritz drive me up to the Malott place at once. Archie, are you there? No, boss, I just fainted. And that, Mr. Wolf, is most of the story up to now. Very interesting. Yes, indeed. But it isn't true. I did not put anything in Mr. Goodwin's drink. Then did you ask him to take you into town? Yes. And I might have been found in a ditch. Oh, it's ridiculous. Why did you try to get Mr. Goodwin to take you to town? Because I felt it would be too embarrassing to remain until morning. Maybe you'd already given Mother the big dose of poison and wanted Goodwin out before it was discovered. Well, you Wait a minute. That... Now, Mr. Miller, you claim that you knew nothing about Dorothy being in love with you. Should we believe that? You can believe it or not. Dorothy had a motive to get rid of Mrs. Millot. It seems that Mr. Millot had one, too. And so did Larry. What? You admitted to me that you didn't like your stepmother. And that you disliked Dorothy even more. I didn't say that. You said Dorothy was making a fool of your father. You resented the possibility of any woman sharing in the estate. You knew about the sleeping capsules, and you could have put poison in some of them. You could have written those threat notes. And by getting rid of your stepmother and placing the blame on Dorothy, you'd be getting rid of them both. But I didn't. I did not write those notes. You were the only one who knew about them. I was not the only one. I saw Dorothy coming out of Mother's room. It was this afternoon. Mother was out taking his son back. Dorothy did it. She's the one. I think you're the one. No, no, Dorothy wrote those notes. That's a lie. No, she probably slipped into Mother's room and wrote those notes on Mother's portable. What? Hey, just a minute. Archie, come here. I never heard of such lies. I didn't do it. You can't send me to jail. I'll kill you first. Larry, drop that gun. Don't come near me, any of you. You're such a fool, Larry. Give me that gun. I'll shoot. I'll shoot. Come on. There. Now, you better quiet down, kid. Or Inspector Crane will take care of you when he arrives. Well, Mr. Wolf, what goes on here? Where's Goodwin? I sent him upstairs, Inspector Kramer, upstairs to Mrs. Malott's room to check on something. Ah, here he is. Yeah? What have you been doing, Goodwin? This, Inspector, is the piece de resistance. This is what Mr. Wolf has been waiting for. This little black box contains a typewriter, a portable noiseless Remington. Mrs. Millard's typewriter. What? I didn't even know she had a typewriter. Larry knew she had one. And this is undoubtedly the very typewriter the threat notes were written on. All three of them. You were right, boss. Oh, I knew she had a typewriter, but I didn't write those notes. Oh, shut up. Archie, how do you know the notes were written on this typewriter? I've compared the type and the ribbon. They're both the same. These notes were written on this Remington. It was Dorothy. Larry, I don't believe a word you've been saying. Dorothy couldn't possibly be guilty of such a thing. If anyone is guilty, you yourself certainly have all the earmarks. Everybody's against me, even my own father. But I'm innocent, I tell you. Let me get it. I think I know who it is. Hello. Yeah, just a second. You better take it, boss. Wolf. Oh, yes, go ahead. Let's have it. Yes. He's here, but he won't mind. Yes? I see. Uh-huh. You just finished. Oh. Good. Right. Bye. Was it the coroner? The coroner. Reporting that poison was found in the sleeping capsules. And the body. Did they find poison? They did. You're right again, boss. I'm going up to Mrs. Minot's room for a while. I want you to come along with me. Find anything yet, Archie? No, mostly bills and invitations to bridge parties and so on. Ah. You find something, boss? 
Yes and no. This pocketbook detective story. What about it? I was just flipping through the pages and I find this corner turned down. Well, well. What is it? Look and read. Why stay on in the face of death? Interesting. The very words used in one of the notes. Give me the book. Of course, uh, this doesn't prove a thing either. But it does confirm what I was... Oh, oh. What now? This cinches it. Get them all up here, Archie. Tell Kramer to bring them all to the bedroom. Well, Mr. Wolf, what now? As you all know, Mrs. Millot was poisoned by someone who had an opportunity to put it in the sleeping capsule. Someone in this household. Yeah, but which one? The kid? I never bought any poison in my life. Be quiet, will you? No, Inspector, it wasn't Larry. And I suppose you think I put the rest of that rat poison in your drink, Mr. Goodwin. No, Dorothy, it wasn't you. But how did you know it was rat poison? I didn't. I just guessed. I can think, too. Then if it wasn't Dorothy or Larry, you you must mean me. No, Mr. Lund. No, wait a minute. It had to be somebody. Yes. This is going to be painful for you, Mr. Malott. Well, you you mean that Mrs. Malott did commit suicide? It was more than suicide. It was suicide with an attempt to have both you and Dorothy convicted of murder. She planted things? She did. I can't believe it. Show him the pocketbook, mystery. Here's the proof. Some of the threat notes were lifted bodily from this novel. Look on the back cover. Isn't that Mrs. Millot's handwriting? Yes, and this is the other note, the one to you, Mr. Wolfe, composed in pencil before she typed it out on her machine. Then, Wolfe, the note you received was the same typing as the threat notes. See for yourself, Inspector. Then why the Dickens didn't Archie compare them right away? Just one of those things, Inspector. There are times when even a good detective is a bit on the, uh, shall we say, dull side. Don't you find it often true, Inspector? Hmm? Nice of you to go all the way out there, boss. I was a bit stuck. Quite all right, Archie. Yeah, something that still bothers me. So? How can such a sweet, motherly type as Mrs. Malott cook up such gruesome ideas? She was a very sick woman. Mentally as well as physically. She probably felt she was going to die. And her warped mind seized on the opportunity to make sure that this Dorothy didn't get her man after she was dead. And speaking of Dorothy, she's a mighty pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Some beer, please, Archie. If you were so certain that Dorothy wasn't guilty, what was the idea of spending so much time questioning her? Huh? Why, I, I, I... Never mind the raised eyebrow department. Answer the question. Well, there are certain rules a good detective always follows. Some are in the book, others aren't. You mean there's nothing in the book which says a good detective shouldn't spend a few minutes with an attractive brunette, even though she is a murder suspect? The author of that book can be none other than the incomparable Archie Goodwin. (laughs) Good night, Archie. Ah. have been listening to The New Adventures of Nero Wolf, starring Sidney Greenstreet. Tonight's transcribed story by John Edison was based on the characters created by Rex Stout. This is an Edwin Fadiman production, produced and directed by J. Donald Wilson. In the cast were Harry Bartell as Archie Goodwin, Anne Jean Bates, Irene Winston, Ted Von Eltz, Jerry Hausner, Vic Rodman, and Bill Johnstone. Next week at this same time, Nero Wolfe and Archie will bring you the case of the shot in the dark. Don Stanley speaking. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's music in the air tomorrow evening, music and fun, brought to you by Dennis Day, Judy Canova, and Grand Old Opry. Charming and boyish Dennis gets himself tangled in another bewildering situation, while Judy Canova gets together with her comedy pals for some mountain-style goings-on, and Saturday also means a killer cycle trip to Nashville for Grand Old Opry. Friday's fun includes Sam Spade and, of course, the magnificent Montague on NBC. That's Case Closed for this week. You can find more from crime classics, Nero Wolf, 
Case Closed, and all the other Relic Radio podcasts at relicradio.com. Don't forget to donate while you're there if you're able to help out. Thanks again to those who have, and thanks for joining me this week. I'll be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. Thank you.